And welcome to this commentary track for Vinegar Syndrome's release of Lamberta Barber's 1983 Jalo, A Blade in the Dark. We are collectively The Hysteria Continues, the Slasher and the Jali loving podcast. Uh, and this commentary will talk about the state of the Jalo in 1983. Also, the various controversies about this film, including its explicit violence and a depiction of a trans killer. Um, we'll also talk some background about the cast and crew and, of course, the director's other work, including his other 80s and lone 90s Jalo. I'm Justin Kozel. I'm the, uh, the author of Teenage Wasteland, a.k.a. the slasher movie Uncut, and also the webmaster of the Hysteria Lives. And, as usual, I'm joined by my trusty co-host. And uh, first up, Eric... Uh, how are you doing? And uh, any comments on this kind of kind of slightly notorious opening for this movie? Yeah, I love this opening. Um, we're seeing our wonderful friend here, Giovanni Frezza, who uh, was a mainstay in a lot of uh, early 80s uh, Italian horror and action films. So I'm sure we'll probably talk about him later. But yeah, I do love this opening. I think it's very strong, although it's a bit of a cheat when we learn it's a film within the film. Yeah, it's kind of it's a nod to the kind of playful nature of the movie, and also uh, something Lamberto Barber's kind of is very well known for, especially more so, I'd say, um, in his kind of later Jali, which are kind of slightly more playful than this one. Although this is a movie that I really enjoy. Blowout uh, is the film that comes to mind when I see this opening because that that starts with a uh, a slasher movie within the movie as well. Yeah, interestingly, the Italian critics at the time, some of the reviews that I found um, did uh, compare uh, this film to De Palma um, and also Argento and, of course, Hitchcock, which, of course, there's uh, uh, pretty obvious comparisons. But, uh, uh, Joseph, what are your memories of the first time you saw A Blade in the Dark? Well, I couldn't tell you the first time I saw uh, A Blade in the Dark. It's probably early to mid-'90s, probably an acquisition from Alt Horror, the news group. Um, though I can tell you at one point that lightning video VHS release from 1986 was a much sought after, uh, tape for my collection. And I, I absolutely love that cover artwork with a dead woman perched atop the keys of the Steinway. Um, I should also mention that the, 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 um, the, the VHS actually runs a little leaner and I say leaner as uh, nicely as possible. Um, it runs a 96 minutes though. I no longer have that copy to make comparisons on what's missing. But yeah, um, I think it was mid-90s when I first saw Blade in the Dark, and I've loved it ever since. Excellent. Yeah, I remember that uh, the VHS uh, release I had way back in the midst of time had that same uh, image of the woman sort of laying across the oversized uh, piano keys, uh, which is something that kind of I remember sort of really struck me when I saw it in the video store. So I must have seen it first in probably the late 80s, I would think. But uh, Nathan, do you remember your first time? No, um, it's another example of I watched this when I was very young because this movie really scared me when I was a kid. And it really still kind of gives me the creeps, at least some of the scenes like all the you know scenes that happen at that villa, which when I was a kid, I thought villa was so cool. Like I wanted to visit a villa because I don't think we have those in the States, but yeah. Um, I do remember the VHS that... <laughs> yes, we Joseph... do, Nathan. <laughs> we do? Yeah, they just call them something else, I guess. Oh, like houses. Well, I or... want to go to one that's actually called a villa, because if it's not called villa, then it's not the same. Um, 
But uh, the VHS that Joe was talking about, uh, just one thing I wanted to point out is there is a picture on the back of that VHS that is not from A Blade in the Dark. It is actually from the underrated Shadows Run Black. So a little connection there for you. Okay. Well, interesting little tidbit. Well, I think underrated might be stretching it a little bit there, Nathan, on Shadows (laughs) Run Black. That's the Kevin Kevin Costner one, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think it's underrated. Well, we'll see if uh, Vinick Syndrome ever put that one out. Who knows? Uh, Maybe they will. So, I mean, this movie is the kind of the first of Lamberto Bava's uh, Jali that he made. He kind of, he made... um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, it goes without saying, but I'll just sort of say, well, two things. One thing is to say, obviously, we will be spoiling this as we go through, uh, talking about the plot. Um, but uh, obviously, I presume you would have watched the film before listening to the commentary. And if you haven't, then please to go and do so first. Um, but uh, yeah, Lamberto Bava is obviously the son of Mario Bava, who is the kind of the um, the originator of the Jalo, certainly in the cinema, uh, with his film The Girl They Knew Too Much, and of course, um, it's kind of many fantastic Jalli that came through the the sixties, um, uh, sort of Blood and Black Lace, um, Five Dollars for an August Moon, um, and sort of a number of a number of others, um, which uh, probably the the one we talk about most in connection is um, Bay of Blood. Um, which Lamberta Bava kind of assisted on, and also um, some other people who we'll talk about involved in this movie were also in, involved with. So we'll talk a bit more about his uh, his um, uh, his kind of obviously his input to this movie and how he came about making it. But um, obviously we're seeing on screen at the moment. Um, this is actually uh, Luciano uh, Martino's villa, um, who is uh, who's the brother of Sergio Martino and was the husband of uh, the Queen of the Jalo in the 1970s, Edwige Fenique. Um, uh, he's sadly no longer with us, but this was shot in his villa in Rome um, because this is relatively a low-budget movie, although it looks pretty good. I mean, it was shot on 16 mil and blown up to 35 mil for uh, cinema release. But of course, as we'll talk about later, it wasn't meant, it was originally meant for, for TV, um, but uh, the, the violence in it made it kind of problematic for that. But um, just talk about the two characters uh, here. We've got um, Andrea Ochapinti, who plays Bruno, who is the composer who's now rented this villa from uh, Tony as Michele Suavi, who many, many people watching this will recognize um, from numerous uh, roles he's been in in Italian uh, genre, uh, and of course he's um, he's uh, you know had a, a great run as a director of Italian genre movies in the in the 80s uh, into the 90s. So we'll talk more about that um, uh, as they come up. But um, can you can you guys think of? I mean, this is obviously the, the beginning was a film within a film. But again, like many Jali, this is kind of like a Chinese um, puzzle box, isn't it? In so much that. Um, although at the moment it doesn't look like uh, when you're first watching it, it's going to have anything to do with the plot. Um, the making of this film is kind of instrumental to the kind of the, the genesis of the uh, the murders, isn't it? It is. Well, I can I can tell you that Sandra's a bad person. I mean, she's using uh, uh, Tony Rendina's life story and just kind of fucking him over with that. I mean, she gets what's coming to her. One thing um, that I wanted to say is I absolutely love the dialogue in this scene because um, it, it does one of my favorite tropes in a movie when they over explain something 
um, to someone because right <laughs> here she says this is nothing compared to the last reel, which of course you haven't seen yet. And I'm like, but there would be no reason to say that. I actually came up with a three-tiered drinking game for A Blade in the Dark, and that expositionary uh, dialogue factors into uh, the the moderate drinking uh, level, which is the middle. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Of course, you've not seen this one. Yes, yeah, like he knows this already, but thanks for telling us. It has a reputation of, of having a particularly ludicrous English dub, because if you watch the uh, Italian version, the dialogue's very different, uh, including the uh, the scene that we all love, which is the cockroach slash spider scene that comes up in a few minutes' time. Uh, but yeah, the Italian version is a bit more eloquent. That, I mean, that's always been the case. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of a bone of contention for many fans of Italian genre cinema, but for many of us who grew up on watching these tapes back in the 80s, I mean, it's the only way we saw them was the English dub, so we didn't have anything to judge it against. Um, and so they certainly have that, that kind of entertainment value as well, this kind of kitsch entertainment value, but unfortunately it sometimes um, obscures the kind, of, uh, the kind of the seriousness, perhaps, of some of these movies, although... Again, these these films were meant to be, they were made for a populist audience. They weren't made, they're not art films. They're made for um, an audi- a, a, a kind of urban um, working audience or a, a rural audience, uh, traditionally, these kind of um, jali or exploitation horror movies. Um, so sometimes, I think sometimes people can take them a little bit too seriously. Um, and certainly Lamberto Bava doesn't take his movies that seriously, I don't think. I mean, when you look at some of the uh, his other jali coming up, like um, uh, You'll Die at Midnight or um, uh, Delirium or sort of Body Puzzle, I mean, they, they, they do revel in their kind of absurdities, which is what we love about the jalo as well. So, but you were mentioning Blowout, Eric, earlier, weren't you? So you've got this character here who's, um, you know, he's a composer, which, of course, um, it's kind of similar to the John Travolta character in Blowout, isn't it? Sort of similar in so much that it's kind of not he's not necessarily a composer, but it's, he's working with sound as well. Yeah, mm. but this this kind of trope of the artist in peril is, is you know it's quite common in the giallo. If you think of David Hemmings, who's the jazz piano player in Deep Red, you've got Michael Brandon in Four Flies and Grey Velvet, who's a jazz drummer or a funk drummer. I can't really remember, but uh, it, then like you have the author in. Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and again, there's an author in peril in um, Tenebrae as well. So there seems to be this sort of common thread of the artist as the hero. Yeah, it also has that. I mean, it's it's very kind of feels very similar in a lot of ways to Tenebrae, doesn't it? The Dario Argento uh, movie from the year before, which Lamberto Bava um, was working on in an assistant capacity before he was off this movie. So he. He left that movie to film this, but how much of uh, working on Tenebrae informed on this? But you certainly have um, a kind of, a, at this time, a kind of almost a rejection of that Italian Gothic that you would have seen in sort of a lot of Mario Bava's movies or other kind of uh, Italian Gothic movies of the 60s. Um, so if, if this was made in the 1970s, this would be uh, in a Gothic castle, wouldn't it? Um, but by 1982, 83, uh, obviously Tenebrae was kind of set in a kind of very near future. Um, so everything was kind of modern looking. Uh, and I think it's kind of an accident in some ways because this movie was filmed in this this kind of 
beautiful but fairly kind of non it's it's not particularly um eccentric looking building is it minimalist so, minimalist is the building word. Yeah. yes um so it's kind of it's interesting in those kind of uh, sort of comparisons and so how much of it was meant you know um the barber took from that project uh, I, i'm not sure but obviously this is a this is a film that he he was offered so he was kind of a, a director and for hire which is the same thing that happened when he made um, macabre with his first movie in 1980 um and he was offered it by Bubiavati, uh, who was the, the the director of the fantastic uh, kind of supernatural giallo, um, the house of the laughing windows. Uh, so, um, so he was offered that, 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 that kind of role. So I think it took a, maybe a, a slight while for Lamberto Barva to find his, his feet. Um, uh, and it's strange for, for me looking at these movies that he's made. I mean, he's, he went on to be probably better known for his kind of fantasy work and a lot of the kind of children's, uh, fantasy films and TV work he did later on. Um, but uh, it, it, this is an incredibly violent movie um, when you get to it. And um, Barber's gone on record as saying that actually the idea of filming women being killed with knives makes him physically sick. Um, so, but having said that, he's so good at making these kind of movies um, and they're so entertaining. So it's, it is a kind of a, a strange thing, but um, I think it probably Barber does, Lambert Barber probably finds himself more at home in making something like Demons, which sort of came uh, a few years after this. And it's probably the film he's probably best known for with uh, UK and US, US audiences, I would have thought. Well, I think the I think Lamberto gets unfairly maligned because he's not his father. Um, but, you know, you can call me a heretic if you want. I find his output to be infinitely more rewatchable as they, they kind of have the added benefit of being made in a really gaudy period of excess and little common sense. And you guys know how much I love movies that pretty much trounce reality. Um, I think Mario's films are better made, certainly. Um, and I don't think Lamberto is ever going to measure up to his father's artistic excess. But really, I mean, who does? I think looking at the time period in which both Bava's operated helps the viewer appreciate what, you know, Lamberto in particular was able to achieve with these films, whether or not, you know, he was his father's son on a technical sense. Yeah, I would agree with that to some some degree. I mean, I think I agree that um, uh, Mario Bava was a kind of a, a magician of a filmmaker. I mean, making very low budgets and made films look incredible. Um, and uh, but as far as kind of say the um, the kind of the trash excesses of the Jalo by this point in the eighties and into the later eighties. I mean, as far as this film, I, the dubbing gives it that extra air of that kind of sort of trashy excess when it wasn't there originally. Um, having said that, the uh, it's you know it's a it, it definitely tips its hat to its uh, um, it's originating as a TV uh, series because it was originally um, designed to be well it, I think it was filmed as um it was i've seen it variously reported as as four episodes or six episodes for rye which is i'm sure i'm pronouncing it correctly but it's the the kind of the bbc i kind of guess of italy it's the publicly owned or government owned broadcasting uh sort of network um so the film was rejected by the censors uh for, for the violence so it was decided to release it to to cinemas instead and it was actually a, a relatively uh big success i think i read somewhere it was about made about eight hundred thousand lira i um, in comparison uh, argento's uh tenebrae made two billion lira at the italian box office the year before 
So um, Barva was kind of riding maybe on a wave of uh, that. And we talk about the Jali um, and its kind of heyday and where it was in 1983, which um, uh, unfortunately, I mean, this was only a handful of um, cinematically released Jali, which maybe we'll t talk about a couple of the others as we go along. But you can see this kind of episodic episodic nature can't you with the uh, the turning up of the uh, these random seemingly random women who just sort of <laughs> yeah. turn up at the house that's um, also in my drinking game as well <laughs> yeah because it was supposed to be for like four 27 minute episodes i think and each episode was supposed to climax in a, in a murder so you can kind of see like a woman turns up randomly and then is killed you know every 25 minutes or so uh so yeah you can see how it would have worked originally as a tv series yeah, I mean, this is uh, because they, she's not on screen for that much longer. And again, her death scene seems very, um, reminds me very much of the similar death scene in Tenebrae um, uh, sort of coming up. But this actor is Valeria Cavalli, um, is, who plays Katya, who's the kind of the neighbour. Um, there's a big question mark over the whole movie about they, they will talk about the, the previous tenants or the person. I don't know if it's a tenant or a person who owned it. I think it was a tenant called Linda who's this mysterious woman that most of these, a lot of these women knew. Um, and uh, it, it, the reason that becomes sort of uh, difficult, sort of like in a thematic way, or is is because obviously we find out um, at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, that uh, the killer is um, is actually played by Michele Suave, who's, who's, um, who's basic psychosis, we're kind of led to believe, although it's not exactly explicitly uh, laid out for us is um, has been triggered by um, the fact that his his friend is making a movie based on his life um, or secrets he's told her or she's told her um, and so uh, he uh, he or she is killing women uh, that come in contact with the house. It doesn't really uh, it doesn't like many Jali I can guess don't stand up to a massive amount of scrutiny. Uh, when you start picking things apart. But it could be argued, and I think it's fair to argue, that that's not necessarily the point of a shallow, is it? It's not, you're, you're not, if you were going to try and pick apart the um, the kind of the, the, the motives and the psychology behind um, uh, murders in in your typical shallow, I, you know, they don't hold up to much scrutiny. But again, that's not really the point. Um, having said that, it's going to be interesting to talk about, you know, for watching it through a modern lens, um, the uh, you know having this trans killer, um, but certainly the the trans killer in the Blade and Dark is not the first and probably won't be the last uh, sort of trans killer in the horror um, sort of and uh, Jali movies. But um, but just mentioning sorry just sort of mention uh, going back to uh, Valeria Cavalli because as I say she's not going to be on the screen for much longer. Um, she was uh, originally a model and she kind of made her film debut in 1982 with a film called Bomber by Michelle Lupo. Um, but she kind of, although it's difficult to judge it based on the English dub here, but she actually went on to win uh, Best Actress in 1993 for a role in the film called Mario, Maria and Mario, Beatori Scoli. Um, and she's still acting and uh, mostly in TV now. But she also appeared in The Third Mother, the uh, Daragento's kind of possibly slightly ill-fated um, third um, sort of uh, sequel to uh, Suspirian Inferno. Yeah, and of course you got Bruno here who was um, playing the antithesis in uh, the New York Ripper of his character here. Um, 
I don't know. I uh, I kind of like him better here than I did in New York. Ripper. He seems kind of more like a a likable press, a leading man, I guess is what I'd say. Well, he's he's kind of like a kind of it's in some ways that's kind of typical uh, Jalo um, male protagonist, isn't it? They kind of who although it's not as prevalent here. Of course, the other kind of trope I guess for Jalo films is the is the non police investigator, the kind of civilian investigator. And he's kind of trying to piece together what's kind of happening in his house and also interested in um, the, the history of the house and who, who this mysterious Linda is. But the, the scene here of the neighbour catcher leaving is, say, it's, it's very reminiscent, isn't it, of, uh, of Tenebrae. Um, that scene, I can't remember the name of the actress, uh, Laura Wendell, isn't it? Who, and it's a funny, funny kind of like show how kind of not incestuous, but the Italian filmmaking industry was. Michele Suave, if I remember correctly, he was the he was the boyfriend that drops Laura Wendell's character off on the motorbike, isn't he? And they have an argument, and then she runs off. So uh, he, um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of connections there. You guys find this to be kind of an odd weapon because I um, was working in a warehouse and had one of these to cut open the boxes, and um, it was very flimsy. Like, it didn't – I was afraid it was just going to break just from cutting tape off of a box. Well, you get the typical box cutter are pretty sturdy, but he's using, like, an exacto knife, which you'd cut paper with, so it's not very sturdy, and he's able to do this much damage with all these people with that little flimsy knife. It's kind of um, absurd. But remember, folks, we're watching a giallo. Yes. So there, there's, there, there was that giallo, wasn't there, the one where uh, some people have been killed with a dildo, which I can't remember the name of, but... Um, <laughs> I think he might have dreamt that one just as a no, knife plus art. No, I can't remember. Oh, it will come to me. I can't remember the name of it. It's a quite fa- famously sleazy one. It I wasn't mean, knife of, plus heart, was it? No, no, it wasn't. It was the one that was starring. I'll, I'll look it up in a minute, but I won't. Um, but, uh, I, do, I do think the uh, the box cutter, I I feel uh, if you're being attacked with a box cutter, it's kind of, you can make kind of more a, a relatable murder weapon. Uh, so like when she's getting sort of slashed with that knife uh, coming up shortly when she's sort of behind that wire mesh. Uh, I think it's, it's, you can sort of wince at that, whereas you can't at uh, somebody being chopped in half with a chainsaw. You know, it's one of those sort of relatable... Because, um, you know, we've all been sort of cut by, you know, a knife or something. like having a paper cut almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It has that kind of wince factor, I think. Although why she kind of stands behind the wire mesh for so long is, is again, you know... Yeah, because it doesn't shallow... really give you a good escape route. Hmm. Sister of Ursula was the film I'm thinking about, The Killer with a Dildo. Okay. So, yeah. Don't think I've seen that one. No. Well, that's one for the list. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, Valeria Cavalli, who we're, who's playing Katya here, she was also in, um, has anyone ever seen the Thunder series starring Mark Gregory from um, Bronx Warriors? It's kind of a, an action series by Fabrizio De Angelis, and uh, she's in the first one with Mark. I don't think I have seen that, but uh, I mean, they say at this time there was, the, you know, there was lots of actors and actresses turning up and all sorts of different things. And of course, this was kind of, I kind of guess at the tail end of the um, the, the Italian um, sort of film industry, and not just the horror and the action and things was kind of like not quite on the rocks, but the production had gone down massively compared to kind of a heyday in the um, uh, early seventies and early eighties. So uh, it's it's. 
it's also interesting that I, I don't know what... I've, I looked to try and work at, find out what the, the reason was that the film was so violent. Um, you know, because there, there's, there's not this one is is quite a violent death, but there's the scene coming from the bathroom, which is the, the real standout scene, um, which is incredibly gory and prolonged and violent. And I know the Italian censors on TV are kind of more lax, but obviously uh, they they balked at the the violence in this. I mean, all I can think of is obviously you had the two that came before this were um, the aforementioned Tenebrae and New York Ripper, and of course New York Ripper. I mean, Tenebrae has its share of violence. Of course, Argento is known for that kind of hyper violence, um, but no more so than Fulci, who's known for even more hyper violence. Of course, that was the the New York Ripper was the crescendo of of uh, kind of violence in the giallo wasn't it um i mean like many uh, genres they kind of you know the whole thing about go go bigger or go home for the sequel and those films trundle on through a, a cycle um it, you saw these um the jali going into the late 70s uh sort of mario landi's shallow uh, 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 venezia um was probably the most uh, notorious uh, example where you had extreme violence and also almost pornographic sex and in some cases um uh, you did get sort of uh, inserts that so they did have some of the the jali were re-released with hardcore porno inserts so you had that kind of that kind of exploitation exploitation angle amped up and that's all i can think but it's surprising for for tv because i think i mean we'll look look more um as we go on at some of the other made for jalo tv movies i mean even back in the um, uh, sort of back in the sort of the, just after the heyday of the Jallo, I mean, uh, Dario Argento was making his uh, his kind of uh, his his kind of made TV Jallos with a door into darkness in 1973, which I read was his um, his attempt to kind of uh, in the quote in inverted quotes piss off the Italian government and test the limits of television executives. And um, so, so it's it's not without precedent, but uh, you know, it's it's surprising. Given and also the fact is possibly, given the success of Tenebrae, and by 1982 the Jallo was pretty moribund at the, the Italian box office, uh, certainly compared to ten years previously in the kind of the height of the Jallo in the early 70s. So um, I'm sure executives would have possibly been. Uh, sort of impressed to to release this theatrically, and they obviously rewarded with a pretty good return on their money. Um, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I mean, the only thing that for me is, as much as I enjoy this movie, I think it could stand losing 10, 15 minutes of runtime yeah. to make it a tighter movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved A Blade in the Dark, though I do admit it has a big issue with pacing. I mean, there are so many shots of uh, Bruno wandering around, or even the scene where... Um, his neighbor comes for a swim. It just seems like it shows her in the swimming pool forever. And I think, you know, trimming this down to a leaner 85 to 90 minutes would have uh, suited the film greatly. Going back to your uh, comment about what, why is it so gory? I mean, I, I'm perplexed as to how they thought this was going to uh, play on television um, unless uh, Italian uh, censorship was really lax back in 1983 but I did read a, a quote from uh, Lamberto Bava who said that some of his contemporaries were telling him that Macabre was brilliant and they were really impressed but he should really think about adding some more violence into his next film uh, for commercial reasons so that's possibly one of the influences although as we said it, it doesn't explain how he thought he could get away with this much violence on television which yeah, uh, I'm is wondering. Yeah weird. I'm wondering if there was like a um, if, if he thought maybe if he 
threw in all that violence that they would immediately change their mind and go theatrical or maybe you know maybe he that's how he changed their mind on it i don't know because this was originally meant to be a tv series and he knew that he couldn't get away with the gore maybe he was just kind of uh trying to bluff them i guess maybe i don't know well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the Italian um, relationship with violence is is different because uh, I mean, when this was released theatrically in in Italy in 1986, sorry, 83, it was um, uh, it was at a minimum age uh, for 40. You had to be 14 years or older to watch it. So, uh, and of course, in the UK, when this was released on video, it was cut very heavily. So, you even if you were 18 or over, you couldn't see an uncut version of this. So uh, they obviously have the laxer uh, sort of um, approach to to violence. Um, I mean, just talking about sort of the, what was also happening around this time. I mean, looking at the the 1983 specifically, the year that *The Blade in the Dark* came out theatrically in in Italy, um, there was only a, a couple of other move. Uh, what could be termed as jali. Uh, there was Killing of the Flesh with um, uh, Mark Parrell, who in his last role he tragically died, I think at the age of 34. Uh, and he'd been in, he'd played the priest in uh, Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. Um, the other one that's possibly slightly better known is Carlo Vanzina's um, uh, espionage thriller, Jalo Mashup Mystere, um, which um, uh, was very stylish. He went on to do the, almost the kind of Argenta parody uh, the wonderful Nothing Underneath in 1985. Um, so, I mean, those were the... So the, 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 those two and this film were the lone theatrically released what could be termed as Jali in uh, the Italian box office. Um, so, I mean, also you can usually tell when a film's kind of entering its kind of twilight years um, is when the parodies start coming out. And there was there, there were some parodies of the Jalo um in the years in the 70s but around this time there was a, a parody was, uh, called no thanks coffee makes me nervous uh which kind of parried a lot of the tropes of the giallo um and other filmmakers were um who had previously made it big at the box office uh were making um uh, moving more to the small screen <clears throat> excuse me and just as i mentioned there was kind of the italian film industry was shrinking quite significantly this time so a lot of uh, filmmakers did switch to, to the smaller screen, including Sergio Martino um, with uh, his film, The Scorpion with Two Tails, which uh, I think was re released to Italian TV. I think it was in 1982. I mean, that was originally seven hour installments with ad breaks, which was then cut to 100 minutes for a video release. So that was um, uh, as an example. The other one that I used to have on VHS uh, way, way back in the midst of time was another um, made for Italian uh, TV uh, miniseries with, uh, that was loosely, was loosely sort of um, be termed a giallo was uh, The Secret of Seagull Island, which um, was released in 1982 as, uh, uh, as a feature-length a feature -length English language cut um, of, the, of a TV series called Seagull Island in 1981. Um, so there was quite a few of those kind of, uh, you know, things happening. And say, um, uh, Mario Bava's next film, um, uh, Midnight Killer or um, you'll, you'll Die at Midnight. Lamberto. Um, Lamberto, sorry. Lamberto. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> You're going to make some people mad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, Lamberto Bava's um, uh, You'll Die at Midnight, a.k.a. Okay, uh, Midnight Killer. He, uh, again, that was that was due for release um, on, uh, it was made for Italian TV, but again was released to to screens um and i remember that one being quite violent as well i mean history kind of repeating itself here i mean you got these people going in uh 
releasing all these films, these jolly on on TV. Now we got today, we got uh, you know, people opting for Netflix or Hulu or something like that. So it's almost like kind of like a repeat. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's obviously. I mean, I think if you're if you're watching, you're listening to this, and you're watching this film, you're probably well versed in the Jalo. So we're not going to give you a kind of a, a, a blow by blow account of the the, the Jalo. But I'm sure, again, if you're a fan of the genre, um, uh, then you'll know that the kind of the heyday was 1971 to 1972, roughly. Um, and of course, the uh, Mario Bava originated. Uh, arguably originated Jallo with the girl that knew too much in the early sixties, but the the Jallo that we kind of the the reverberations of what we consider I can guess most of most of us who are fans of the Italian Jallo are is the Dario Argento's uh, movies um, uh, starting with the bird with the crystal plumage. Um, so he it's I've seen quite a few times that people have said that uh, Lamberto Bava who obviously worked with Dario Argento quite a lot. In fact, he he was assistant director or he did some assistant directing uh, duties on uh, Inferno in 1980 for Dario Argento. Um, uh, people arguably said that he he um, uh, struggled to get out of the shadow of Argento with his Jalo movies. Having said that, I think that's kind of unfair because I, I would say that um, uh, Dario Argento has a more, he's kind of got a more twisted psyche and he's more stylized perhaps with his movies. And I love, you know, I love almost all of his early movies, all of his early early movies. Um, but uh, Lamberto Bava, I would say, has a more kind of slightly more comedic, more absurdist touch, um, which you see coming out more in films like Delirium. Uh, where you have the um, you have the, uh, the kind of the hallucinating of these models with massive insect heads and stuff, which is not something I would necessarily imagine Dario Argento doing. But um, Lamberto Bava, I think, definitely has earned a place. You know, his own his his own style uh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of people compare Lamberto to his father, but if you know, if you ask me, I think. Yeah, Dario Argento's closer to being Mario Bava than Lamberto ever was. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, I, I see what you mean, Eric, about the wandering around the house. There's a, a, a awful lot of uh, wandering around the house looking for clues. It's almost like you can almost compare it to a video <laughs> game for today. And that's you, in my drinking like... game as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So just just to um, uh, this film when it came out was kind of relatively well received uh, by Italian critics. Um, the 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 Italian title directly kind of um, uh, translates as the house with a staircase in the dark. Um, Lamberto Bava said he actually preferred a blade in the dark because it kind of made more sense. Um, so, uh, but uh, it's um, I mean just a little bit of the review. There's a review from La Stampa, which is an Italian. Uh, newspapers. So the the film they said that they were talking about saying that he'd kind of started with macabro, 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 um, uh, and uh, but they said he's now a valid author of Italian style thrill films and now presents himself as this director of the House of a Staircase in the Dark, a low budget thriller. And they said it appeared in its world premiere two months ago at uh, Mister Fest in Catalitica. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but. Um, it goes on to say, despite this absolute modesty production, the film does not lack interest. In the narrative, the usual con- concentration of terror and fright is based on the story of a musician who, in a no less uh, the usual isolated villa, 
uh, is putting together a soundtrack of a horror film made by a friend of the composer. Um, it then goes on to, I'm not sure if this is lost in translation, it says, enigmatic female creatures visit the villa regularly, ending up having their throats slit by a vicious murderer. Um, uh, it says, uh, in the cruel development, the film flaunts various quotations, Hitchcock, Argento, De Palma, um, and the repeated heinousness intended uh, to fully uh, satisfy genre enthusiasts. Um, it says uh, it says that the acting isn't all that, although uh, it does uh, sort of praise Andrea Ochapinti, um, and also the um, uh, who we haven't mentioned yet, the kind of the shifty gardener Stanko Molna, who um, uh, says are kind of standouts in this movie. Really, the gardener? I mean, he doesn't really have much to do here, but okay. Um, and I don't think anyone worth their salt would have ever, you know, pegged him as the killer. I think um, from what I've read, there's um, there varying different cuts. There's, the, I think it's in this longer cut, you've got um, more of him uh, being a kind of red herring, whereas in other cuts, that's not so much. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Do you guys find that uh, Julia's character here is not very sympathetic? Well, no, I'm guessing she's supposed to be a red herring as well because she's mysteriously disappeared from this theater production she's supposed to be working in and there's something a bit standoffish about her. Yeah, just like she thinks Bruno's just cheating on her constantly. There's her, there's her motive. Yeah, because we're meant to think all the way through that the killer is a woman, aren't we? So uh, it's like a biological woman. It's, it's, so this is why I guess the, the script is throwing um, these kind of uh, these things at these other char female characters to try and get us to think that she may be something shifty about her. But um, um, the, the actress here is uh, Lara Lamberti, um, who uh, is, um, I think her original name is Lara Nazinski. Um, if that sounds familiar, she's actually the granddaughter of Klaus Kinski, who, of course, was in uh, a lot of Jali himself, and also the, co uh, the cousin of Natasha Kinski. Um, so she also, if you fans of Italian horror, which I'm sure you are if you're watching this, she was also the, the female lead in uh, Lucia Fulci's Enigma um, from a few years after this. And, uh, and then kind of looks like she left acting to become an opera singer between 1980. Uh, well, she was also in. She was also in Zombie Three, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So the film is written by Dardano Sacchetti, who, uh, I, if you have a look at his CV, it's just really impressive. He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Like, if you think of any um, uh, Lamberto Bava or Lucio Fulci film from the eighties, it. it, it you're guaranteed that he's written it. So here's a list of some of his credits, like Zombie Flesh Eaters, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby. Uh, he also did work on one of my favourite films, uh, Amishville 2, The Possession, uh, Bronx Warriors, uh, and then the same year as this, he did Atlantis Interceptors. Uh, he went on to work on Demons and Demons 2, Body Count, a great Ruggiero Diodato slasher movie. So uh, yeah, so he got his first gig on Argento's Cat and Nine Tales in 1971 and apparently they had a huge falling out creative differences Argento and uh, Dargiano Sacchetti so um, Lamberto Bava credits himself with bringing them back together because of course in 1985 Sacchetti wrote Demons and Argento was the producer and so apparently the two sort of made amends 
all thanks to our friend Limberto. I did um, hear that they didn't get on on this move, they, did they, Lamberto Bava and Dardana Sochetti? I think they'd, they'd met and they were friends through um, when they worked together um, on uh, Mario Bava's A Bear Blood in 1971. But um, apparently, uh, I, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it, but um, uh, the screenplay, as you, you mentioned, was by Dardano uh, Sacchetti, but also uh, his wife, um, Elisa Beriganti, who um, there was kind of basically a writing duo. Uh, and um, he said, um, Dardano said that he was basically the writer and his wife would, they would work together at the kitchen table or wherever, and he would... He would write and read back ideas and then she would chip in and they would sort of basically put together plots. And she had a, a history um, in uh, psychology. I think she um, had sort of studied psychology. Uh, and uh, there was a kind of interesting interview with her talking um, about their ideas behind these films. Uh, two of them was that uh, it was, um, they said that they, uh, they originally, when they were writing, they were interested in psychology um, of the characters, but were more, but became more interested in building a story. And uh, Dardano was kind of saying, I mean, he was more than well aware of the absurdities, you know, the fantastic absurdities of Italian genre f um, films around this kind of time in the 70s. Um, and uh, the interview, of, I can't remember the name of the uh, interview I saw, but uh, apologies, but the interview was talking about how Sometimes the um, uh, in some of uh, some of the films that the killer, just like Mrs. Voorhees, would just come out at the end, and you'd only had briefly glimpsed them. And Adano said, sort of joked, laughed and said, "Yeah, well, that's just that's just how things were back then." Um, but his wife was also said, um, interestingly, she they were very much the the thought that uh, violence, and of course, there'd been a lot of talk about violence um, in cinema in Italy. Uh, after films like uh, Ruggiero Diodato's um, Cannibal Holocaust um, and obviously uh, Cannibal Ferox um, and also, uh, you know, infamous cases where uh, Lucio Fulci was taken to court for animal cruelty until it was, um, until he got his makeup effects guy to show that uh, the dogs used in, um, I think the lizard in the woman's skin weren't real, they were just animatronics. So there was a lot of uh, conversation about this, probably mirroring what was going on in the UK and the United States at the time. But uh, she was saying that they um, uh, that uh, they didn't believe that the, the movies that they wrote cultivated violence, um, but in fact actually uh, um, provided an escape valve for kind of violent feelings um, and uh, kind of helps people deal with reality by providing a kind of a, f a fantasy, however violent on screen, which I think is kind of an interesting, interesting approach. Um, he did, I think, um, given that uh, you know that there were, apparently there was a bit of falling out between Lamberto Bava and Dardana Sacchetti and his wife. Um, uh, they obviously made up quite fairly quickly because uh, I think they worked together. Elisa Dardano did with uh, Lamberto Bava on You'll Die at Midnight. So I think they worked on, he did about 11 or 12 films of Lamberto Bava. So they obviously uh, sort of um, made that work. And he was also had a hand in some of the other fantastic jally that we love, like Seven Bloodstains Orchids, um, uh, Why These Strange Drops of Blood on the Body of Jennifer, um, all, these, all these sort of fantastic movies. So uh, yes, a great writing partnership. Well, they must have um, made friends because he went on to, well, uh, and they went on to work together on Demons 1 and 2 and Midnight Killer. So, um, 
It can't have been too strange, the relationship. No, no. Well, I can imagine making a film must be quite stressful, especially for Lambert Bava. It's kind of his, his only second movie. So as in flying solo, as it were, as a director. So I can imagine that may have been sort of been tricky. But um, I mean, it's because obviously, we're, you know, we're coming not quite halfway point here, but um, the, uh, you know, you've got the character here, Nokeli Suave, who's, who, you know, we know, well, we know now, it's not revealed until the very end of the movie that his auto ego is, is Linda. Um, it's one of the questions that we, we kind of had and we talked about before we came on and it's a thing I've seen talked about elsewhere is how all these characters would, um, would not have noticed that it was, um, uh, you know, Michele Suave in, in a wig, basically. Um, and apparently, originally, the idea that Lamberto Bava interviewed lots of um, actors, that he wanted an actor that could pass convincingly as a woman. So I potentially, I can guess the original idea, although I'm hoping I'm not putting words in his mouth, but the original idea from what I can put piece together was that you would have had a character that would have passed as a uh, kind of as a woman for the audience. And so that would make more sense about why these characters, these kind of random, well, seemingly random female characters to turn up at Bruno's house. Yeah, like Jay Davidson in, in The Crying Game. Yeah. That kind of character. Yeah, so I think that's kind of where they were going for originally. Um, in the end, and again, it's difficult to judge with the English the English dubbing as well because the um, obviously you've got uh, you know you've got like the dubbing like the the quacking duck killer in New York Ripper was obviously uh, a choice of uh, Lucio Fulci, but um, the, uh, the 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 killer in this has got this kind of sing song laughing voice, which it immediately kind of doesn't sound very authentic. But again, whether or not that was the same in the Italian dub, I'm not sure. Well, the Italian dub, as I was saying, has very different dialogue. I mean, that scene where she bursts out of the closet and says, oh, it's a, sp- a spider. And he goes, no, it's a cockroach. In the Italian dub, she says, oh, I'm scared. There's an insect in there. I think it's either a, a beetle or a spider. And then he says nothing. So the English dub, the people who were doing the English dub thought it might be fun, I suppose, to just throw in the line, oh, it's actually a cockroach. And we see a close-up, and it's very clearly a spider. Um, you know, these are the kind of things I get hung up on. But like, there, there is lines, really clunky English dub lines, like, um, you're such a vacant nerd sitting out here in the sun like a frog, which just it's just not something a natural English speaker would ever say, I don't think, unless they're Salvador Dali, maybe. Do the Italians, I mean, do they not fact check some of these uh, translations because so, mo- so much of it gets lost? I would be kind of mad if, if, if my film got sent to an American audience and they had to deal with a dub that wasn't particularly correct. Well, like Justin said, I mean, I think the, the more ludicrous the dub, the more entertaining it, c- it can be. I mean, it, it probably can take the sheen off a really serious movie. But it can also add a, add a real layer of fun to a, a popcorn movie, which is what I think it does for Blade in the Dark. Just sort of mention the the actress here, who's uh, who's coming looking for Katia, uh, Angela, I think it's the character's name, uh, Fabiola Toledo, who's a Spanish actress who um, was born in the Canary Islands where I currently live. So um, it's a, and um, uh, she moved to Italy when she was sixteen. 
uh, but sort of was kind of got well known for Italian horror movies. Of course, she went on to be in Demons. Um, she was also in Joe D'Amato's uh, Caligula, The Untold Story, which also um, had Michele Suave in, in a small part as well. Um, so, uh, I mean, this is probably her death scene coming up in the bathroom is, is the film's most notorious scene, isn't it? And it's kind of difficult to believe that would have played uncut on Italian TV. I mean, it's almost like <clears throat> she um, did something to personally offend Linda because, like, Linda, like, really tortures her before killing her. It's, like you said, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, it's difficult to know what, you know, again, I think the, the you know, it's the the journey uh, with the shallow. They're kind of going along with the thrills and doesn't necessarily um, stand up to too much scrutiny because... The psychosis of Linda, the Linda character, um, obviously we've mentioned, this seems to be sparked by this this um, uh, this film that's been made um, loosely based on her life. Uh, but it's it, it's difficult to understand why she's then, unless I mean, if you're from kind of cod psychology point of view, I, I can guess what I can think is if that if the um, Michele Suave's character is so kind of unhappy at being trans that they're trying to kill the the woman in them by killing other women. Well, that's what that's yeah, that's what I think Mark and uh, sorry, not Mark Bruno and the other guy um, discuss at the end of the film in that when he's in the cutting room uh, in the very coda of the film, uh, they they mention something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of arguments against that um, motive and things as it deals with trans people. Um, but I was trying to compile a list of uh, uh, body count films that use the transsexual or cross-dresser as murderer trope. Um, here's a few just alongside Blade in the Dark. We have uh, Dress to Kill, Fatal Games, Hide and Go Shriek, Psycho, Sleepaway Camp, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, and Unhinged, just to name a few. And, um, you know, I've read a lot of theories and thoughts on these films and how they portray transsexuals and cross-dressers. But I'm not really the person to discuss those politics, nor do I necessarily, uh, you know, believe that these films were made with the intention of making a particular statement about that. But uh, the one question I had for you guys was um, most of these films, you know, particularly Psycho, were um, obviously inspired by the real life crimes of serial killer Ed Gein, you know, who's noted to have directly influenced Psycho. And of course, Psycho set that particular template for a lot of films that followed. But, um, you know, had Ed Gein not been caught and confessed and his proclivities become public knowledge, um, would these films, you know, including A Blade in the Dark, would they still exist? I mean, was he solely responsible for that trope? Or do you think these movies would have, uh, you know, would have, would have coalesced eventually? I mean, I think it really was the uh, the kind of the the coalescing coalescing of the, the infamy of Ed Gein and the box office success of Hitchcock's Psycho that's kind of kick-started that um, thing, which was kind of quickly followed by uh, William Castle's Homicidal, which actually has more to more in common with I think what they were originally going for in this, where you actually have a character who um, is dressing as one sex, but is, is the other, so actually on, on camera. Um, so it, it, is, it is tricky, it is tricky. I mean, I would say that arguably um, Dario Argento had more progressive uh, views of, uh, of gay characters and, and transsexual characters. Obviously, in Tenebrae, you had Eva Robbins uh, in the flashback sequences in Tenebrae, although, of course, 
she does get stabbed in the stomach, so it's not that progressive. Having said that, I mean, Argento featured kind of transsexual characters or, or gay, gay characters in films like Deep Red. And um, he once said, and whether or not it was a joke, I don't know, but he wanted to make a, a giallo with completely gay characters at one point. So I think he had a, you know, he it was interesting. Uh, uh, Argento had gay characters in his movies that there was no commentary or no comment on them being gay beyond them just being gay. They were just there as, and that they just what they were, and they just were part of the the tapestry and the of the, of the movie. Whereas the, I think it is looking back on this now. I kind of from a I could, from a trans point of view, you would think that um, the, the the equivalence of psychosis and uh, transsexualism is is kind of pretty prevalent in these movies. I mean, the only film that I can um, think of where you actually have a, r a rare, a positive role for a transsexual uh, character is the little scene American Nightmare from 1983. We have the character Dolly, who is kind of very likable, uh, kind of sort of sidekick to the um, to the main uh, to one of the main characters. Um, but otherwise, I mean, there's something like Dress to Kill. Um, again, you have that kind of the you know the part of Dress to Kill. It's the, the the transsexual nature goes hand in hand with a psycho like a murderous psychosis or Buffalo Bill in Science of the Lambs. So it is kind of pretty regressive. Having said that, I think again it's kind of watching these films. If you're if you're going to be offended, if you're easily offended, you're not going to be watching Shelley, basically. Um, and I, when I was looking doing some research for this, I found uh, an article on this movie um, by a, a critic called Ten Back, who uh, is a, a trans woman who co-hosts uh, the Jalo podcast Violence on Velvet. And uh, what she says about this, um, she says that the Blade and Dark is muddled, confusing, poorly paced and transphobic. However, uh, she also says at the same time, it's funny, violent, gorgeous and somehow makes tennis balls scary. Um, it says that while it gets a lot wrong, it also gets a lot right. Um, and uh, she goes on to say, it would be easy for me to be critical and tell you not to watch this film. However, um, sometimes you might want to watch a film where the director gets choked by their own film reel. Um, uh, side characters get overly complex backstories and the murders make no sense. I know that I do. So again, you know, we can't speak for trans people watching this movie, but, you know, I think the mileage may vary, uh, certainly. But it's you know it, it would be nice to see some more positive uh kind of role models uh in or char trans characters in in horror movies and maybe one day we will yeah i mean i agree with what you're saying there justin that's kind of like what i, I was going to say in, th in films like this and dress to kill it seems to indicate that if you are transsexual or transvestite or cross-dressing or drag or anything like that then it obviously something is wrong with your mind and he could very possibly be a killer that's kind of what i feel this is saying but uh uh yeah the argento ones usually they're you know like the the character as you said in deep red he's kind of gay as kind of a throwaway rather than anything else in the plot which is quite progressive for a film that's nearly 50 years old uh but yeah i think hopefully we're making up for it now with it's sort of modern cinema you see a lot of sort of gay or trans characters you know in big mainstream blockbuster movies and i don't think it's upsetting too many people so I do always wonder with this scene, though, why does she put the shampoo so far away from the sink? I mean, that's a good point. Although I kind of wonder why Linda, like, just walks this slowly. Um, 
You know, it seems to take her a bit to get to the bathroom. Well, she's not used to working walking in heels, maybe. Yeah, that's just, this could be true. Um, going back to what you guys were saying, um, would y'all put Terror Train in that same category? Because oh, yeah. Terror Train, mm-hmm. I never got the vibe that it was because he liked to dress like a woman is why he killed. I mean, obviously his was more revenge. So I don't know if it necessarily was presented as a negative. No, I always got the impression with Terror Train that it was because of the prank they played with him at the, at the start, and it, that's what was driving him. Nothing else. Yeah, some of the stuff I had read on some of these, um, you know, theories on tricks and on transsexuals and slasher films. Um, one person mentioned that Sleepaway Camp was probably the most honest. I'm not sure if I believe believe it or not, or if I agree with it or not, but their reasoning was that this was a child who necessarily didn't have these feelings that they were dealing with. They were just forced into it by an external aggressor in the Aunt Martha character. And I thought that was pretty interesting that, yeah, you do have someone there who is um, basically just forced into living a life that they don't want, and that's why they snap. Possibly, although I think that was done, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that was done for, you know, it's done for exploitation purposes, I'm sure, um, which again, we're, we're, we're fans of exploitation movies, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but um, Sleepaway Camp, I think, is, is a classic in its own right uh, for that kind, of, that kind of shock ending, but I don't think it probably did much to trans rights. Although I'm I'm happy to be corrected. Yeah, on I'm going to be I'm going to be honest and say I think maybe people read into these a little too much, but you know, it's yeah. I guess the eye of the beholder. I guess. Yeah, I just want to quickly mention the special effects in this because it is a, a particularly splattery movie, which of course is uh, fun. Although I'm not quite sure how Linda's going to clean all that up with a, a box of tissues, <laughs> but. Um, uh, yeah, special effects by uh, an artist called Giovanni Corridori, um, and he did special effects uh, and worked on uh, about 70 movies in the Italian film industry from 1964 to 2005. Um, so he also worked, uh, he um, did uh, work with Lucio Fulci on Zombie 2, so uh, definitely got his, uh, his gore gore chops there um he also uh worked he worked on with uh, argento on tenebrae so possibly that's uh, kind of where he may move straight from working on tenebrae to working on this with uh with uh lamberto bava uh and uh, he also kept, went on to work uh, with argento on opera and the stendhal syndrome and I think he was he was also um, responsible for those wonderful exploding eggs in uh, alien, uh, Contamination, uh, Luigi Cosi video nasty. So uh, so he certainly knew how to sort of put some uh, some gore effects together. Yeah, because that knife in the hand makes me wince, especially when you know she pulls it through. I was, I was watching that. I was wondering how they did it because it doesn't look normally, you know, if you look at some of the, um, uh, you know, the gore effects are certainly in like as much as I love uh, Lucio Fulci's um, uh, sort of zombie trilogy, you know, like some of the uh, special effects when they especially seen them on 4K or, you know, full HD, they can look a little bit fake. But uh, I with this, it kind of I couldn't really work out how they did that. It didn't look like a fake hand. Yeah. Snuff. Oh, 
uh, just uh, while they were on screen a second ago, the kids who were taunting poor Giovanni Frezza by calling him a female. Uh, one of them is an actor called Marco Vivio. Um, and he is, uh, he went on, to, uh, you know, uh, to a career in dubbing. So he's the voice of Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Ah, interesting. Okay, that's really cool. Mm. <laughs> From shouting, you're a female, to I'm going to get you, Green Goblin. <laughs> Why did Linda leave the knife by the sink? I mean, I I would have put it back in the um, thingamajig, the knife holder. Well, maybe she's leaving clues, perhaps. Yeah, maybe she wants him to solve it. Yeah, that's how he determines that later that the knife was used in the in the bathroom because he noticed it was missing and then he realizes, hey, maybe that knife will fit that hole, Uwer. <laughs> Uwer, yeah. <laughs> talking about Giovanni Frezza, he's, um, he was obviously uh, had a kind of very brief but very memorable sort of uh, Italian horror career. Uh, but he kind of finished, I think his last role was in Demons. Uh, and he uh, he kind of uh, left. Um, he kind of retired at the age of thirteen, which is quite a young age to retire. But uh, I was reading he he lives in America at the moment. He kind of manages a multinational company. I'm not. Say, I'm not. Where, has he? Have you seen him talk about any of his film roles? Yes, hmm. he has. He has appeared on the convention circuit within the last maybe five ten years or so. Um, and he he seems like a really nice, well-adjusted chap, and he he jokingly refers to the poor dubbing job that usually accompanied his roles back in the day. Because as we know, it's a middle-aged woman doing his voice, particularly in in House by the Cemetery. He plays the character of Bob, which and the first thing anyone ever thinks of when they think of that film is the Giovanni Frezza dub, uh, where he has this kind of shrill middle-aged woman's voice, and I think he possibly has the same woman um dubbing him on this as well because it sounds very similar um but yeah no he he's he's game for a laugh and he seems to be up for chatting about these films excellent that's good because he's also in uh the same year as this he's in the new barbarians as well Mm, which is a a terrific kind of post-apocalyptic movie with um futuristic and inverted commas bubble cars and that type of thing i mean in demons i mean it's really just a cameo isn't it right at the end yeah, he's in the Jeep at the end. Yeah, yeah, so very sort of all about. But um, let's going back to Andrea Ochapinti. He was kind of, I, I, he's probably better known now. I mean, he had, again, he had kind of a relatively brief kind of uh, career in Italian horror and exploitation movies. Um, he went on to, uh, uh, he got his big break, well, what was going to be his big break in, in Hollywood when he uh, appeared in the infamous Bolero with Bo, is Bo Derek's love interest, uh, the um, kind of the, the kind of the sexy movie follow up to um, Ten, I think it was. Yeah, it's a canon production, so you can kind of yeah. guess where it's going. <laughs> yes, um, but he kind of he's he's still acting. I think he was um, he was in a, f- a film in the last couple of years called Under the Amalfi Sun. But uh, he's probably better known and he's very successful uh, sort of career as a producer. Uh, and he's had he started producing films in the mid 1990s, and he's had a hand in such films as uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist and Michael Haneke's Funny Games. So uh, that's kind of I mean he's still acting on and off, but that's where his kind of uh, his energies have gone uh, in the in the sort of meantime. Did you guys notice if there was a J and B bottle in this film as there as there are in most Jelly? 
I didn't remember if I saw one or not. Mm. No, I always wondered with those whether or not they um, they got paid. They were kind of like it's a bit like uh, someone like Mac and Me, where they paid. They've obviously like, all the McDonald's and the Coca Cola uh, sort of product and placement and Skittles. Yeah, but Coca-Cola saved their lives. <laughs> that is true, but uh, yeah, I kind of I whether it's just down to the cast and crew getting uh, crates of J and B at the end of the shoot, I don't know. But I haven't I haven't spotted one in this one. It's a very it is a very as a character the the villa is very bland isn't it it's white so white you'd be convinced it was a set because it's so um <laughs> you know nondescript but it actually is a real villa i'm just wondering if it was you know hadn't been completed or something and and that's why it's got no absolutely no decoration this is yeah, why you don't see any jmb bottles there's a major uh, lack of like wallpaper that you typically see in these films it's just so white and kind of you know bland like you said what well, better for the blood to splash that is true but more difficult to clear clear it up i would have thought well not for linda I mean, you see that bathroom in there. I mean, like she's just using Kleenex and she got it really clean. <laughs> that is true. That is true indeed. <laughs> I mean, one of the things they say, mentioned that the film was shot on 16 mil for TV and then blown up to 35 mil. I mean, I still think it looks pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, Vinegar Syndrome always do a fantastic job on their restorations. Um, but um, the, the, the cinematography was done by uh, uh, Gian Lorenzo Battaglia, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, and this was his first movie as a cinematographer. It wasn't his last. Um, uh, he went on to be the director of photography on Demons and also work with uh, Lamberto Barber again on Your Die at Midnight. But um, one of his claims to fame, so I was looking up a surprise, is that he was the under, he did the underwater camera work for that incredible scene in uh, Argento's uh, Inferno, um, with the bodies floating up underneath the the sunken ballroom. Um, but yeah, he, a, I think there isn't the rumor, or possibly um, clarified that somewhere, but that Mario Bava directed that sequence. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, what I mean, he was he actually operate the camera rather than directed it. Yeah, I know, it. but yeah, yeah. I, just just tying it back to the Bava family, I think um, Mario may have directed that underwater sequence as one of the very last things he did. Okay, well, Lamberto Bava was working on Inferno as well, yeah. um, so mm-hmm. it's very possible. But um, uh, Gio Lorenzo uh, Battaglia was also um, before he sort of um, went on to uh, director of photography. He was also did uh, he was a cameraman on such seminal Italian uh, titles as uh, Mario Bava's Five Dolls for an August Moon, um, Bay of Blood, uh, Baron Blood, uh, The Killer is on the Phone, and Death Smiles on the Murder, amongst many, many others. Ooh, I like that title, Death Smiles on a Murderer, because (laughs) death would smile on a murderer because they're getting souls or whatever. Well, they're having a drink here, so I have to mention this. I, like I said, I came up with a, a three-tiered drinking game for Blade in the Dark. If you're a heavy drinker, um, take a drink every time Bruno begins working on his score and is interrupted by a noise, a phone call, a thought, or most egregiously some weirdo neighbor hiding in his closet for no reason whatsoever, or some chick who wants to use the pool, or even his director trying to scare him over the phone when he should be getting work done. I mean, they're making a movie here. If you're a moderate drinker, you just take a drink every time Bruno's involved in an exposition-heavy conversation. The first drink will come early, like Nathan said, with that last real bit, which, of course, Bruno hasn't seen yet. 
Um, and if you're just a light drinker, you can take a drink every time Tony Rendina pops into the periphery just to remind you that his character exists for some reason. And you can have a drink every time somebody misidentifies an insect, which would be yes. twice. That's, yep. so there's, that's a good buzz right there. But that's a great drinking game. We won't be indulging in that while we're recording, maybe afterwards. But um, <laughs> but the, I was just going to mention the uh, the actress there is Anna Papa, which is... Um, got various names or listed in various kind of sort of similar sounding sort of variations of the name as Sandra, the female uh, director. She, she was also uh, an earlier in Sergio Martino's The Great Alligator in 1979. Uh, she kind of sprung to fame or kind of infamy. Um, uh, she was kind of like the Sabrina kind of, um, uh, of the kind of the uh, late or the mid seventies in some ways, because she was, uh, uh, during Miss Italy 1976, she won Miss Cinema 1976, but um, she got loads of uh, column inches and uh, lots of press um, interests because uh, it created a kind of mini scandal, which actually lost her the title for a little while, although it got reinstated, because apparently she, um, while all the paparazzi were outside, she started playing with her breasts, which um, is going to break <laughs> Jane, Man Jane Mansfield of her, but... Uh, uh, that apparently caused, sort of catapulted her into the public uh, sphere through scandal. But as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So um, uh, she went on to appear in this and also kind of a number of other, other films throughout the, uh, the 1980s. I call her um, deviated septum Sandra because uh, the way she says Bruno, she pronounces the N's as D's like, you you were the perfect person for this score, Brudo. And I think she might be the first. <laughs> yeah, she might be that dubbing. That that might be the first voice I've actually recognized in a different movie. I think it might have been, it was either the Paganini horror or um, uh, Murder Rock. I can't remember which one, but that same person dubbing Sandra appeared in one of those films. And I was like, that's that same voice, that deviated <laughs> septum type voice it must be funny if they kind of the these actors if they listen back through to uh to uh how they were dubbed although i imagine for a lot of these they, at the time still they were making so many movies that uh, they would just be on to the next one but one other question do you did we ever work out what the deal was with tennis balls I thought it Wasn't was because the tennis ball of that the memory. one that went down the stairs, or was yeah, it they like threw a... the tennis ball down the stairs for him to retrieve? We, I don't think we ever, we never find out like why the kid screams when he gets to the bottom of the stairs, though, do we? And why the bloodied tennis ball comes back up the stairs at the end when he walks back up the stairs he's wearing that wig and everything but i mean mm. that doesn't explain why he screamed and i think that's supposed to symbolize his transformation into the, the to the woman he doesn't want to be and that's that would indicate why there's blood and the screaming he's basically transformed over i guess that's what mm. i got from it anyway yeah because we never find out what the end of the film was do we no. i thought the end of the film was him walking up those stairs is it because I thought well, Linda goes in and cuts up all the um, all the, the basically all the kind of uh, but they piece the, it back together, don't they? Ah, right. Okay. Now was um, was it really just a coincidence that Bruno ends up at this villa where Linda was the previous tenant, and he happens to be working on a score for the movie about her life? Because right here, Sandra's like, "No, it can't be the same Linda." And then, of course, when she sees all the tennis balls, she's like, oh, it is the same Linda. I haven't seen her in three years. Yeah, but she used to live in this apartment, so there's every chance it could be the same Linda. Yeah, Sandra's not being very truthful in all this, I don't think. she's She's got a few secrets of her own. 
So you don't think it was a coincidence? Well, I mean, yeah, it was a coincidence, but I think she was still keeping a lot of secrets as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's like, she's like, she's not the narrator, but she could be like an unreliable narrator to Bruno. Um, I mean, he doesn't get any information from her other than, oh, this is the last reel. Of course, which you haven't seen yet again. <laughs> she also like says that uh, with the movie that she's making that it is based off of uh, Linda, but she changed a lot of stuff. But apparently that was not good enough for Linda. You didn't change enough, I guess. No, I think uh, Linda was uh, royally pissed off, wasn't she? And, I mean, like Joe said, rightfully so. <laughs> Here's another thing, just while I'm uh, while they're showing the killer's hands. In a lot of these Jolly films, if the killer's wearing black gloves, it's more or less probably going to be a female murderer. But if the, the hands are not gloved, it's probably going to be a male murderer. Especially if the hands are not gloved and they're painted like they're female, it's going to be a male. I have noticed that uh, after the close-up where the killer was touching the knobs and had red fingernails, I have noticed that um, a couple of the female characters, even Sandra right here, has that same nail polish on. Because I noticed it when she was had her hand on Bruno's shoulder. And I'm like, ah, little red herrings. Well, it was kind of, I'm I, I not sure if they were clip-on nails, but, you know, it's, it's always those things, how the killer gets in and out of uh, out of their costume, if, they, if it's a whodunit. And uh, it must be a real bitch to get all that nail polish off. Yeah. I mean, Tony, Tony Rendon in that scene where he kills, um, was it Katya with the spider and the cockroach? Is that her name, Katya? Katya, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where he kills her and he has to drag her all the way across the villa and all the way through the bushes and... Then he has to go and wash up and then he has to go home and all that stuff. I mean, wow. He's like, he's like, I don't even know the word to give him, but he's just so talented. Well, was he dragging her body to the tank that he puts uh, both Katya and um, Angela in? Because later the Giovanni finds them in that big tank. And I'm like, it seems like he was dragging her away from the house. Yeah, um, yeah, because you see the you see both of their bodies in there later in the film, and when you see them inside that that cistern thing, I was reminded of the um, Justin. You may get this. I was reminded of the the Elisa Lamb case at the Cecil in Los Angeles, where people oh, tasted the water. That. Yeah, yeah, where people tasted the water because she was in there. I was like, mm, good thing Bruno only you know was griping about the pool water. He didn't taste. He didn't drink any water. Yeah, I can I can see that. It's kind of it adds that kind of macabre touch to extra touch to it, doesn't it? I mean, it has this kind of slight sense of the gothic here, doesn't it? Even though I think he's trying, Lamberto Barth is trying to add this kind of gothic touch to this with the shadows and the moonlight and and things, but it's he's kind of hampered somewhat by this kind of Mac Mansion um, that it kind of provides quite this kind of dull dull sort of backdrop, unfortunately, to the movie. Um, I did on the Italian, um, there's an Italian page that I found some information about this movie on. And uh, frustratingly, it said that the sentence where it said that, uh, obviously mentioned that it's uh, Luciano Martino's um, sort of villa uh, that they got because the budget was very tiny. But it said that um, uh, Lamberto Bava originally wanted and then the next bit of the sentence is missing. So I don't know what he originally wanted, but I imagine he may have wanted something slightly more stylish. Uh, than this, but it's still it's still a very handsomely shot movie, and um, and uh, but like you say, they, there is this kind of this attempt, isn't there, to to make us think that these fe other female characters are potentially the killer? 
Well, yeah, I mean, she just comes in brandishing a knife for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. And I'm like, she didn't even bother to be like, Bruno, where are you? Or anything You're like that. You're knocking the door or something. Yeah, and she's wearing the same sensible shoes as Linda as well. Yeah. Mm. Although, are those shoes really that sensible? Because like Eric pointed out, she seemed to take forever walking in them, so she might have had problems with... That's possibly true, yeah. <laughs> what did you guys think of the music to the movie? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I think it's great. And I just wanted to say right quick, because I forgot about this earlier, but I always love that when some of the times when Bruno's wandering around the house after he got interrupted, he lets that music play. And I'm like, there is no way I would let this creepy music play while I'm exploring this um, villa. Oh, such a good word. <laughs> I was going to back um, the music is uh, Guido de Angelis uh, and uh, his brother Maurizio. Um, were collectively known as Oliver Onions, um, and uh, as a duo, they composed compose many kind of soundtracks together, including uh, films like the uh, Atlantis Interceptors. I think it was Ruggiero Diodato. Also, uh, 2019, After the Fall of New York, um, uh, The Alien Two, The Last Shark, Killer Fish, Slave the Cannibal God, and I think even as far back as Torso, um, as well. So they were pretty prolific. Uh, sort of um, sort of the rival goblin, I, I kind of guess. But yeah, I think the soundtrack really uh, fits really well in this. I mean, it's yeah, not quite a as piece of. Hmm. Oh, I was going to say, here's a piece of trivia about um, the music that it pertains to myself, but you know, maybe Nathan will only understand. But along with a uh, scream, the Ghost Town slasher from 1981, not the Wes Craven film, uh, Blade in the Dark used to be a film I'd put on at night to help me sleep. Um, I think, I don't know, I think both films have that sort of pattern of a bombastic score and then they have silence and then they have the low dialogue and they wash, rinse, repeat. And I think that induces sleep and you can make as many jokes as you want about the pacing all you like, but I, I don't know what it is exactly. But I think both films have that, you know, that have an eerie score, but that pattern, you know, it works on you like a lullaby. I don't know if you guys have ever put on horror films to sleep, oh, but... Uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, it's kind of comfort horror movies, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I think for this, this movie's a little bit too, too jarring with the violence for, for it to be a film I could fall asleep to, but each to their own. I can definitely see, you know, uh, there's a lot to be said about comfort horror, and there's certainly it's like some of these old older films would, would fit the bill. Did you guys notice that she was painting her nails? Ah, yeah, very observant, very observant. I think it's really cool. Do you think it would have worked better if they had gone down the original route or route of having uh, an actor, an actress that would have um, could have played uh, both female and male? It would have been quite a difficult sleight of hand, wouldn't it? Visual sleight of hand to make it work. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, they did. They successfully did it in Color of Night, as far as I remember. You know that Bruce Willis film that got trashed in the early nineties, but I, I remember that possibly being convincing and as i said you know the crying game had us all fooled so i think it could be easily have been done and it would have been a, a cer certainly a slam dunk finale to 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 match probably sleepaway camp uh, if they'd succeeded yeah i mean as bad as as bad as color of night is i thought that was like the most convincing thing in that film uh the way they hit it for this one. I mean, Lamberto apparently went out of his way, you know, just to get someone who would resemble a female, but I don't know. It's like, he only shows like their feet or their hands. It's not like you see the silhouette of a man that often you don't really even know technically that it's a man until the very end of the movie. Cause you never see him in full. 
Yeah, but the, it it what the problem I suppose that it throws up is that how did the all these people who knew Linda when she used to live there not know that it was really Michele Suave in a frock? <laughs> well, that could be easily explained by just saying they're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to me, like Katya, you know, she has her diary uh, that Bruno reads earlier, and it says something like, um, "I've discovered Linda's secret. It's horrifying. It's terrible." And I'm like, "Is it really?" Yeah childhood trauma i mean yes that's that is bad but i just mean like if i was in katia's position and i just found out that tony was linda i don't know if my reaction would have been as dramatic yeah this is 30 years before rupaul's drag race Mm. yeah i mean different times yeah i mean talking of uh michele suave it's kind of i mean he had um, I don't think he. I'm trying to think if there's any film we had a main, uh, kind of main part in. I don't think there really was, was there? I mean, he was, he was pretty much. Um, uh, I think partly because I think on this film as well he was assisting Lamberto Bava, so uh, and he kind of came on as as a favour. But um, he's in quite a few sort of not blink and you miss it miss it roles, but certainly small roles um, in uh, that Alien Two. Um, is Alien Two Alien on Earth? Yeah, it's that's yeah, the one. That's the one. It's really fun. Mm. Yeah, um, and absurd. He's he's in that very briefly again. I think by someone on a motorbike. Um, he uh, he kind of watches girlfriend throw up her guts in City of the Living Dead. Uh, I think he comes to a sticky end in Caligula, the untold story. Or I've not seen that for a while. He gets uh, castrated. Oh right, so quite a sticky end. Um, and uh, I've mentioned in Tenebrae again. He's on a motorbike and he drops off Laura Wendell. Uh, he was in uh, Phenomena. I'm trying to remember what he was in Phenomena, actually. Yeah, I can't think of who he was in Phenomena, but I mm. read that he is in it. Yeah. Yeah, and Demons. Of course, he has that kind of pivotal role, doesn't he? As the um, the kind of the really Check rude us. character. Yeah. 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 Who won't respond to people. Yeah, but I love that. It's a really good touch, though. That kind of sinister sort of touch. Where he's wearing that kind of um, that mask. Um, yeah, silver mask. Yeah, and also in I think he's a small role in Opera. And uh, he went on to, um, Lamberto Bava went on to remake uh, his um, uh, The Mask of the Devil, which, um, or is it, is it Black Sabbath? I'm trying to get them, which way the English title. No, not Black, Black Sunday. I'm trying to remember the, the one, oh, God. I'm just trying to try too many, too many titles. But anyway, the, um, the, the Mario Bava's sort of seminal uh, film. Uh, so he remade it for TV in 1989. Uh, so he was in that. But he's probably, obviously, probably better known for, you know, as a very talented director in his own right. Um, oh, he's he's amazing. I mean, he's a yeah. fantastic director, very unsung. Stage Fright, I mean, my God, that's one of my top five movies of all time. Yeah. Yeah, Stage on- Fright's really good. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like the, um, I mean, we haven't talked about it so much yet, but that was kind of that amalgamation of the slasher movie, the American slasher movie and the Italian Giallo. And I think what we see in The Blade in the Dark is, again, what you are seeing is definitely a nod to the uh, the American slasher movie. Um, because there's always been that kind of cross-pollination between the uh, American and uh, European cinema, especially Italian cinema. I mean, uh, we're coming off a period where, you know, you had all those films that were kind of inspired by um, uh, sort of American successes and like the, uh, obviously, like uh, the Fulture, the zombie movies kind of inspired by the success 
of the George Romero movies. Um, so with with this, it's definitely a, a kind of a, a giallo, but it has that kind of, um, for me, that it's kind of splatter movie slash movie deaths that can seem to be slightly borrowed from from the uh, the American slasher movie. And again, maybe that, again, that is part of the reason why the violence was amped up so much. Yeah, that's that. That would actually make sense. Um, I mean, this being eighty three, I mean, the slasher film was kind of waning on the wane, but I think they were still popular and prevalent enough to where I don't know. I've said this before when we've done commentaries. Like, it's some. It seems sometimes like Italy is like either two or three years behind the times of the states, or vice versa. So, I mean, you may be onto something there. Yeah, well, arguably, I mean, by stage fright was eighty seven, wasn't it? And that, of course, that was. Um, that was quite a uh, a long time after the heyday of the slasher movie, but um, he went on to um, work on the church as well, which I think was originally going to be Demons Three, but apparently Suave was uh, balked at the idea of making the third Demons movie, which um, uh, Lamberto Bava went on to make uh, Demons Three: The Ogre. Although that maybe that was just a retitling, uh, just for UK video uh, video boxes, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a TV movie called The Ogre that got retitled as Demons 3 by distributors. It was never meant to be a, a Demons uh, mm-hmm. film. Uh, Michele Suave, actually, he did start his career as an actor, and it was when he was working on Gates of Hell, a.k.a. City of the Living Dead, that his role was so small, but he was needed He need, He was needed to be on set sort of so much that he got bored. So he asked if he could uh, take on some extra work. Um, and they hired him as a grip. So that's how he got his first taste of sort of behind-the-scenes stuff. And then on Phenomena, he directed the promo videos for uh, Claudio Simonetti and Bill Wyman. You know, they, the, some of the music videos, you can see them on, on DVD and Blu-ray releases of the film. So he directed those, and uh, Joe D'Amato then sort of said, you know, you're, I think you're ready, kid. How about you direct, you know, Stage Fright? And he knocked it out of the park, right between the eyes. <laughs> He also went on to um, a apparently he was second unit director on um, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen with uh, Terry Gilliam oh, right. as well. Yeah. So uh, and then of course uh, went on to direct the sect. Um, and I think um, of course it's probably his best film uh, is De La Morte De La Mort, but um, that was which is fantastic kind of a slightly surreal horror movie with Rupert Everett um, uh, based on the I think kind of based on the kind of the comic book Dylan Dog. Uh, reportedly, because it that although it got a lot of acclaim and certainly outside of Italy, it was. Um, I remember it coming out uh, on screens in the UK and getting, getting rave reviews. It was a kind of commercial failure, and it kind of caused him to question his abilities. Also, I think he. I think I'm right in thinking that one of his children got was ill for quite a few years, and he yeah he looked after them. But then he kind of he went into a successful run of uh, uh, TV work, which I think he's still he's still doing to this day. So, but it's a shame because I mean, he's such a talented eye for horror movies um, that he hasn't kind of you know come back into the fold uh, yet. Anyway, well, Alberto Bava, you could say the same thing. I mean, he drifted into television as the eighties wore on. Now he did do some um, TV movies in the horror genre, like Graveyard Disturbance and The Ogre. But uh, I think he's doing sort of he did ended up doing more sort of mainstream stuff in the 90s and onwards. Uh, there was uh, a quote in an interview I read where he was hoping to do a 3D remake of Demons. This was in 2015. And uh, I would have paid good money to see a 3D remake of Demons. Oh, my goodness. That would have been incredible. Oh, the amount of money I would spend to see that on the big screen. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it is a, it is a shame. I mean, say, as we mentioned, we talk a little bit about some of his other uh, kind of movies that he made around, you know, to follow this up. Say he wasn't he wasn't a fan of these movies. Like, he's, he's, repeating myself, but he said Dario Argento does them better. Um, so, but he was, he, although he said these things, I mean, all of his movies he made within the, uh, the genre were pretty violent. Um, so he followed this up with, say, Your Die at Midnight, which had, again, that kind of slasher-esque thing that is kind of unusual in the giallo where you have um, a, a legendary killer that is, is um, a returning from the grave, which is very kind of 80s slasher-esque. Um, but um, I, it's a film I love. I mean, it's got the... It has that kind of um, uh, absurdity that I kind of love about the Jalo, and the, it has the fantastic scene with the the, the 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 female character trying to fend off the killer with an electric whisk, which is just such a fantastic kind of absurd moment. Well, it actually um, seems to work a little bit. Well, yes, yeah. So <laughs> I, I mean, just noticed that. Sorry, I just noticed that Bruno left his turn signal on while he's using the phone, and it's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's an uh, American yeah. thing. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, if this is your introduction to Lamberto Bava, then I would definitely recommend seeking out his three jali, um, say, Your your Die at Midnight and Delirium and Body Puzzle. I mean, Delirium was um, a kind of a kind of sort of crazy jali, which is kind of, I think it was a, it was designed as a vehicle for an actress called Serena Grandi, who, um, who was quite uh, well endowed, as you would see on the front of the, the video cover, or the, um, and, uh, so, but that had like a, had a kind of a, a kind of fantastic cast of kind of notable genre uh, people, including David Brandon, who of course was in Stage Fright, uh, George George Eastman, um, of course was an anthropophagus and absurd, as most, many others, and Daria Nicoldi, the the kind of ex-wife of Dario Argento, and of course uh, Italian pop princess Sabrina, who uh, challenged um, Serena Grandi to uh, well, to who had the bigger bigger um, Bits, as it were. So, um, and then the other one, which as I mentioned, which kind of it was an anomaly in the late kind of early nineties, was his film Body Puzzle, um, which is another film I really, really like. It's kind of uh, uh, it was a killer collecting, collecting, well, cutting off bits of bodies, uh, as it sounds. But it has a completely um, again, it's kind of fantastically ludicrous. It's got a fantastic sequence where the killer attacks somebody underwater and they swim underwater with a, a butchered knife. And also the wonderfully silly scene where the killer waits inside a chest freezer for someone to open it, which is <laughs> Very much my, like I... <laughs> <laughs> which is one of my favourite things. But he, the, I haven't seen any of them, but he did actually in 2012 go on to um, direct three TV jally called, um, uh, it translates to Six Steps in the Thriller, or of the Thriller. Um, which I haven't seen. They haven't sort of been made. But if, say, if you are a fan of Blade of the Dark and you want to see a bit more, then do seek out uh, Body Puzzle, Delirium, and uh, Your Diet Midnight. Although I don't know if Your Diet Midnight has ever had a, a decent sort of Blu-ray release. I don't think it has. But one thing I wanted to mention is that, um, and I'm just now twigging on this. I can't believe I've never mentioned it before, but... There, I think why I can't call this a full-fledged giallo is because there is a huge lack of a police presence in this film. Did you guys, I mean, ever pick up on that? That might be the reason it's one of my favorite giallos. Yeah. <laughs> I actually like the lack of police presence. I like the amateur sleuthing. Mm, yeah. I agree. Mm. 
I think it's possibly it's either budgetary because there doesn't if, apart from that one scene where Bruno goes to the pay phone outside. There's very little outside of the villa, is there? Or they well actually they said that he's now pulling up in a car. But it's, <laughs> that's what it's the same. <laughs> famous last words. But, famous last words. but there isn't very much of that, and it seems again it's probably a budgetary constraint. Also, having said that, nobody knows any of these people are dead, do they? Apart from Linda. They're all shoved no, in the pool. True. Suspects that they are, yet mm. he still hangs around. Because um, he does around. that recording where he's like, if something happens to me. Speaking of the recording, you know, earlier in the movie, there's the recording where it's like, Linda, no one must know. I mean, did the killer record that on Bruno's um, composer stuff? Yeah, it's like I was saying, Tony, like, he, he, he can make his way around that villa, or she can make her way around that villa if you want to call her Linda. How did she get to that, um, that you know, that recorder without him noticing? Yeah, I mean, she'd have to be pretty close to, to, to be able to whisper over the sound of the piano. And, you know, I was thinking <laughs> that um, he, maybe it was when he was wandering off to investigate, you know, what's going on at, um, you know, around the villa. Well, I just killed somebody. Oh, crap. I got 30 seconds to get in there to record a secret message over a piano riff. Uh-oh. Do you guys think that Tony could have just sued Sandra and not had the movie released? And maybe then he wouldn't have had to kill a bunch of people? Well, I don't think a, lit- a litigation drama would be as uh, entertaining as a, a, you know, a shallow slasher. <laughs> Can you imagine renting a movie called A Blade in the Dark and it's all about courtroom drama? <laughs> But I think it's kind of a, it's something that's been used loads in the Jalo, isn't it? It's that kind of that buried trauma that kind of it's suddenly suddenly ignited into kind of violence through some action. So it's um, it, it happens loads in Jalo. So again, it, as the screenwriter said, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny, but it's part of the journey and also the, the outlandish climaxes movies um you know they really do not necessarily hold up to kind of scrutiny of sort of judging how believable they are but again you don't we don't go into a jalo for um for kitchen sink drama do we we go in for you know and and that's i'm saying like i'm glad that uh linda took this route it's just you know she might have saved herself a lot of trouble well yes indeed but i mean do we think it's kind of obviously we're coming up to well not coming up to the end yet but uh uh it's it we it it, it doesn't it's again it doesn't um unlike american films doesn't really lend itself to a sequel does it this movie no i mean i don't know how you could say that linda could carry on unless like maybe tony had a relative that snapped you know due to the end of this movie that's true, potentially, yeah. Or Bruno could actually go work for someone who actually wants him to finish the score and then he decides, hey, maybe I'm going to start killing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could go either way, kill or no kill. And we, we haven't really mentioned, I mean, the, 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 the huge red herring uh, is a Giovanni who's played by the uh, Croatian actor Stanko Molnar. Who um, is actually, although it's it's quite you know it's quite interesting his role because he, when you actually see um, headshots of him, he's incredibly good looking, um, uh, sort of like matinee idol, good looking. But he's kind of the way he carries himself in this, he's got that kind of sleaze, um, and uh, you know again it's kind of it's 
thinking about like any kind of caretaker or gardener in any of these kind of slasher movies in the early 80s or Jali in the early 80s is always, they're always red herrings, aren't they? Yeah, yeah didn't you pieces say, and prom nice. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you say, Eric, that he reminds you of the drummer from Japan? Yeah, he looks just like Steve Jansen, from, who's the drummer with the band Japan, who's uh, David Sylvian's brother. Looks really like him. Thankfully, he's never been hit in the head with a spanner, though. Oh, we call that a wrench. Oh. Probably probably call that over here as well. I'm just, I'm not really that manly a man, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm not either, but um, um, some reason I knew that. Maybe it was because of Clue. Well, it's a, that's the trouble of having a transatlantic podcast, isn't it? Sometimes language is like different, but he was... Um, uh, Stanko Molnar, he was uh, he went on to uh, appear in a number of horror movies. He's also in Macabre, the uh, the, the first film of Lamberto Bava, uh, sort of solo director as a solo director, uh, and he appeared um, alongside uh, Lombardo uh, Giovanni Lombardo Radice in his production of Macbeth, apparently um, on stage. Uh, he was also in the uh, that remake of um, a, a Black Sunday with uh, uh, Lambert Abarva in 1989 and uh, won an International Russian Horror Film Award in 2014 for his international contributions to the development of the horror genre. So he's obviously, uh, you know, was kind of, uh, was doing a lot behind the scenes as well. Now this scene coming up with Sandra's death, I mean, is there film that would actually strangle someone without snapping. I don't think so. I'm not very familiar with how durable film is, but I'm going to say no. It is poetic though. Yes. Yeah. Very poetic. Very much like, Hey, you made this movie. I'm going to kill no. you with this movie. Yeah. Although I feel, I, I don't know what Sandra's thinking. I mean, why did she go there by herself? I mean, she obviously knows Linda's dangerous or she wouldn't have that knife with her. So I'm like, Sandra, 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 where, where's your brain? You make horror movies. How do you not know this is a bad idea? <laughs> and why do, why do you just, as a thought, because I can you, I can't for life of me think of a female Italian horror film director from this time. Can you think of one? Hmm. No. Right off hand, no. I mean, I think the Jolly was a boys' club exclusively. I can't mm. think of one either. So, I mean, there were a few in the, in the US around this kind of time, um, but I just it's I just wonder what the purpose, unless it was just to have another female victim for part four, if that was potentially what the the, the idea was. But um, it was kind of it's yeah, it's just what the if they were trying to do anything clever with it, or it was just literally that. I I don't know. But there's kind of the irony here of her being strangled with her own film, which kind of does lend itself to that kind of that kind of black comedic reading of the, of the, of the movie, um, because the again the sort of the the trans character here is that especially when when she is kind of revealed as Tony, um, when the wig comes off, that there's no mistaking that 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 character is. You know, is Michaeli Suave in a in a dress, um, because there's there's no grace or finesse to that character at all um, by that point in the movie. So it's yeah, I'm just wondering what they you know if there was what thought was going into that, or again it was just a, a quickly made movie, and these things just sometimes work or don't work. Well, is um, Giovanni the the um, the handyman? Is he the only male character who dies in this film? 
I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hmm. And really, he just kind of died because he saw too much, you know, unfortunate victim. You know, I have to wonder with all these uh, women that got uh, killed because, you know, they all had nice things to say about Linda. Like, you know, Angela's like, oh, she always let us used to swim in the pool and stuff like that. And I'm like, it must be as quite a shock to get killed by the person that you think is so nice and friendly. Well, how would you experience shock? You'd be dead. Well, I mean, uh, while you're getting killed, <laughs> you know, when that knife went into Angela's hand and she looked and saw who it was, I'd be like, WTF? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if at first it's like, hey, come swim in my pool. Now it's like, hey, I'm going to bash your teeth out. <laughs> Speaking of shock, has anyone ever seen Lamberto Bava's 1988 TV movie Until Death, which I have on VHS under the title The Changeling 2? Um, because it's more, it's kind of a remake of Shock, uh, the Mario Bava film. So um, you were saying, Justin, that in '89 he remade Black Sunday. So he kind of remade Shock as well. Um, I mean, it's a fun movie, uh, uh, The Changeling 2. Nothing to do with the George C. Scott Changeling, just a, a, a cash in title, retitle for the English market. Well, that's again, that's kind of par for the course, isn't it, with the, uh, <laughs> the movies around this time? But. Uh... I mean, it's. it's uh, I haven't seen that one. I mean, I do love uh, Mario Bava Shock. It's a. It's got. It's in fact actually got one of the best shock, jump scares in the history of horror movies. If you've not seen it, which I won't spoil, spoil now. But um, one thing I was going to say. I don't know whether or not again the the irony with the the, the female character being uh, strangled with a film was kind of a. It was like a ironic touch. But also the other thing that kind of. Um, uh, sort of uh, when I was reading in interviews with uh, Dardano uh, Sacchetti was he was saying that um, one of the constant battles they used to have was on budgets all the time they're always cutting budgets and never being able to quite do what they they wanted to do and uh, and I sort of said that again there's absolutely no way that an Italian producer would put um, Bruno up in a massive mansion just to score a film because that would cost loads of money. <laughs> so, so it would cost a lot of money, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's absolutely no way they would do that. It's and not grounded thing. in reality, Justin, I guess. Exactly. And I think the, the scenes coming at the, the scene at the moment with this kind of stalking scene around the house, again, is very kind of reminiscent of that kind of stalk and slash, the slasher movie from around this time. Uh, more so than the the Jalo. I mean, in fact, quite often with Jalo, the um, uh, certainly sort of some of the uh, the earlier examples that, that they didn't have a massive amount of chase scenes and things going around. It, it was kind of more it, that wasn't quite. They, they, did, they did have some um, in the thing, but it wasn't necessarily the focus of the movie. Whereas that this kind of this the film kind of ends on this kind of cat and mouse um, sort of stalking scene around the house. Which again, sort of, I think it feels much more reminiscent of an American slasher movie than uh, it necessarily does a, a, an Italian giallo, or you know, unless something, maybe something like uh, Sergio Martino's uh, Torso. Were you guys kind of shocked um, at the fact that like Julia does end up getting killed? Because I just I felt like the movie was going to a point where Bruno was going to basically rescue her at the end, and like. That actually doesn't happen, which I kind of thought was uh, very surprising. 
Well, the one thing I was thinking about with Julia is that, you know, all the other all the other female deaths in the film, they can be directly tied to Linda's past or the plot of the film, whereas Julia is kind of more or less here to kind of um, give stakes for the Bruno character. And But at the same time, I'm thinking, you know what, she's so kind of unlikable. I, I don't think it really matters if she's here or not. I think she's just another victim, you know, as for a shock ending. You know, I think I think you're right. I think they just want to kind of throw in a shock ending. I don't think her presence really adds much to the story, and it certainly doesn't really add much to uh, Bruno because I don't find her as very likable. Yeah, I do think that, like you guys said, the they wanted to make her kind of a red herring herself, but in order to do that, she comes across very, you know, unlikable, basically, uh, for most of the movie. I mean, um, you know, she has her moments. I have to wonder how she keeps this door closed. I'm very confused about that because, you know, the killer (laughs) taunts her by sticking the knife through the crack. But, like, how is she holding it closed? Like, look, there's barely (laughs) anything to hold. And she doesn't seem to react either when the knife comes through the door. She just kind of sits there and looks at the blade like, oh, um, this is normal. I'd be like, well, darn it. How'd you know which closet I was in? Well, I'm more surprised by is that like when when all those tennis balls appeared from the ceiling, she didn't even bother to look up to see where they came from. She just continued walking on, going, "Hmm, mm-hmm. fair <laughs> enough." Every day, yeah, yeah. I'd be scared here because there's nowhere to go. I mean, again, it's like a like Katya earlier in the movie. Um, she kind of blocks herself mm. in a unescapable situation. I do wonder if it's actually Michele Suave uh, in these scenes, um, because you don't when the, the the shot of through the kind of frosted glass doesn't look like him, so it looks like a woman uh, with that wig on. So I do wonder if they kind of uh, he you know the, the, the kind of sleight of hand with that. So there may be in the Italian version that uh, because the, the dubbing of Linda's voice and that kind of sing song kind of almost. Um, uh, there was a comparison with the uh, the duck face killer in uh, the New York Ripper. It kind of adds adds this kind of sense of unreality to it, um, uh, and it certainly doesn't make you think that it's a woman. It's, it has that kind of strange kind of sing song uh, female voice you would hear in some of the Dario Argento movies, um, like Deep Red. They've got those kind of the, the killer sometimes. You know, some of the Dario Argento movies when you hear the killer on the phone, or they always have that kind of slightly feminized voice and a kind of sing-song kind of nursery rhyme kind of voice. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't really find Mikhail Suave convincing as a woman. Some people may, but I always thought you know he's he's he or she's killing all these conventionally attractive women. But for me, Mikhail Suave in um, drag kind of looks like a. Uh, Mabel from My Bloody Valentine. I don't know if anyone else picked up on that, but like in silhouette, maybe. Yeah, I was just about to say yeah. the same dress sense because I can mm-hmm. see. Um, yeah, it looks exactly like Mabel in, in that outfit. Yeah, yeah. Probably killed uh, Julia because she was wearing the same shoes. It's like a no-no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a fashion no-no. Yeah, it's just not. It's not. Um, you know, and the same fingernails. It's just it's copying. It's wrong like wearing the same dress to a party i mean even bruno doesn't seem too phased that his girlfriend just got yeah. a knife through her torso he's like well damn it maybe he's like <laughs> maybe he's like hmm, there's an easy out for me 
desensitized to violence from all the horror films he works on. Mm. Yeah. Julia be a should have been there. an actress on the horror movie Sandra was making. That would have been an interesting plot point. Well, that would have tied it in with a plot a little better than, oh, here's Bruno's girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, man. Now Linda's dead. Now I can see Linda possibly surviving that for if they want to, if they did want a sequel. Yeah. Considering consider all the the body trauma that the people in the scream films go through and they survive at the end. I feel like just about any character in the scream movies can come back at some point and just be like I survived all my stabbings. Yeah. But it's funny isn't it so saying about there's going to lack a sequels in Italian cinema. I mean you could argue Inferno was a was a sequel, but it was kind of a sort of you know wrapped up in a trilogy. But uh, it's uh, it's yeah, given the kind of magpie and the exploitative nature of Italian filmmaking genre filmmaking, uh, I'm surprised that some of the more successful movies didn't didn't get sequels like they did in the United States because they surely they would have seen the um, the success of the Halloween you know Halloween sequels, Friday Thirteenth sequels. But um, but I'm not sure there was much story left to be told for a Blade in the Dark. I kind of. Um, for it, however, it works or doesn't work as a kind of with its kind of treatment of trans characters. I can it, it does at least wrap up the story, doesn't it? You know, quite a neat little bow. bow. It pretty much has a, a you know a, a clear cut ending. Like nothing's left um, open to like, oh, there could be a sequel. I mean, like you said, Nathan, we even get the exposition to kind of nail it home. He's doing that whole psycho um, thing where they're just. You don't really need to know all this stuff. If I was Bruno, I'd be like, well, he killed my girlfriend, but this is going to be one hell of a movie. I guess the only thing that's still not really wrapped up is exactly what happened to the, the character in the basement to, for them to come upstairs in the wig. But uh, yes, well, that was Lamberto Barber's A Blade in the Dark. So um, um, uh, yeah, it's probably the longest commentary we've ever done, I think. Um, I don't know. Happy birthday to me was up there. That's true. But yeah, well, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed our commentary, then do check us out on the Hysteria Continues podcast, um, uh, where we cover a Jalo or a Slash movie every every other week. Uh, and thank you to the fine folks of Vinegar Syndrome for giving us another film for us to fanboy over.